about to take you on a long, strange podcast. I'm your guest host, Tim Lynch, and joining me on this journey is founder and host of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, Christian Swain, as well as his colleague at the project, Peter Ferrioli. The podcast is a recap and discussion of each act, one through six, of the documentary Long Strange Trip, The Untold Story of the Grateful Dead. It's an Amazon Studios film directed by Amir Bar-Lev and executive produced by Martin Scorsese. Check out IMDb for the full list of producers, which includes Justin Kreutzmann, son of Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzmann, and a filmmaker in his own right. Over the course of six weeks, we are hosting a roundtable discussion and interviews with special guests featured in Long Strange Trip, with Grateful Dead scholars and thought leaders, and with the uneducated, those who are learning about the Grateful Dead and being exposed for the first time through the Long Strange Trip documentary. Tim, thank, thanks for that uh, opening there. Yes, this is your spoiler warning. Uh, we are going to discuss Long Strange Trip. All four acts are up for discussion today. We encourage you to pause it here. Go watch it on Amazon Prime. Act four is called Who's in Charge Here? Come back, uh, join us for this discussion, and then pause the podcast for part two, where Christian will be talking with our two very special guests about their roles with the Grateful Dead and the entire documentary. Christian? This week, joining us to discuss Act 4, Who's in Charge Here, is a pair of very special dedicated guests. First is photographer and author Rosie McGee, who lived, worked, and traveled with the Grateful Dead during their first decade as a band, after first meeting them late in 1965. Her intimate portraits of the band on stage and behind the scenes have been widely seen in books, magazines, online, and in documentaries. And two 200 of those photos illustrate her book, Dancing with the Dead, a photographic memoir, My Good Old Days with the Grateful Dead and the San Francisco music scene in 1964 to 1974. Uh, pick it up on Amazon. It's only $9.99, folks. Uh, and then you can go to her website at rosiemcgee.com to see everything that she does. Hello, hi. Thanks for inviting me. I'm. I think this is a really cool project. I'm really happy to be part of it. Oh, we're we're grateful to have you here, Rosie. Our other special guest is Bob Braylove. Bob was part of the Grateful Dead party for the last eight years of the band's existence. Brought into the fold from his work with, yes, Stevie Wonder, he brought the new digital synthesizer technology to the Grateful Dead, bringing new sounds and approaches to the music uh, first heard on the album In the Dark. Bray Love's relationship with the band grew rapidly. He began writing songs such as Way to Go Home, Easy Answers, 
Picasso Moon, producing records and eventually playing in that section of the show between uh, drums and space when no one was on stage. The section Dick Latvala dubbed the MIDI jam. Since the end of The Grateful Dead, Braylove has been focusing on his own music and art, including his duo with Grateful Dead keyboardist Tom Constantine, called Dos Hermanos. Uh, you can find everything about Bob at bobbraylove.com. Thanks for inviting me here. Should be fun. I love the uh, I love the show, and it's wonderful to be able to uh, talk to everybody about it. Thank you for joining us, Bob. And uh, well, Christian, that brings us to this week's undeducated guest. It's a very special friend of mine. I want to welcome Tracy Simmons Bula. Tracy is the booking and business manager for Bula Promotions. She manages the award-winning bluegrass band Fireball Mail that just played their premier uh, main stage slot at Telluride Bluegrass. Tracy and her husband Brad are avid house concert hosts, having featured Buddy Green, Jason Eskridge, Adam Wakefield, uh, Grammy winners Forrest and Kate O'Connor, and others in their Nashville, Tennessee home. The Bullas are very passionate about elevating good music of all styles, past and present. And go check out Fireball Mail's music at fireballmailband.com. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Peter. Thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Hey, anything I can do to expose more of my friends to the Grateful Dead, you know I'm going to do it, right? So here we are. And I know Peter's a big fan of Fireball Mail. I hear about it all the time. He is. He has been from day one, not just since they got to tell your ride, but from day one. So thank you. Well, welcome, Tracy. As our undeducated guest, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your relationship to the dead and how you wind up being here. Well, I saw... Peter had a post a while back on social media asking uh, something to the effect of how little you know, or do you know a little or a lot, something like that about uh, the Grateful Dead. And I said, well, I know Jerry Garcia had a maimed finger and Tennessee Jed. And I think he said, bingo. <laughs> Yeah, Tracy, you're one of the, I believe, 10 people left on the planet that know absolutely <laughs> nothing about the Grateful Dead. Well, I do remember when I was in high school in the 80s, they had some music uh, that was very popular and relevant, uh, maybe a comeback thing or something. I don't know, but not completely unheard of. But yes, I'm not like you very dedicated folks. <laughs> Well, tell us then, how did Act 4, uh, what grabbed you about Act 4, what stood out for you, and uh, what were your impressions? Wow, first of all, the wall of sound. Mm. I, I mean, we're not kidding, because I saw the videos and the pictures of it. I am still sort of at a loss for words to comprehend the, and, and you know, they spoke of, <laughs> that was incredible. And, you know, and I loved that their whole purpose behind that was because their, you know, connection with the audience is obviously the sound. Uh, you know, that's the best way to get to the audience with music. And that just the whole production behind it, the logistics, the four hours of setting up. And then, I mean, I was just overwhelmed at the gigantic size. Hey, Rosie, why don't you take uh, take that to the next uh, thing here? I mean, obviously you were there well, when, uh, when uh, Bear came up with this thing, right? Yes, it was. Um, at the time, let's see, the middle of 74 was the last period that I was with the dad. And actually, it's a great segue because that was my number one 
favorite part of uh, episode four was the first view of the wall of sound and Phil laughing and saying with love and bemusement, I loved that thing. It was like the voice of God. (laughs) And, you know, I am really, really glad that the wall of sound got so much attention and time in the film, not just because of its technical innovations and pointing to that, which were amazing, but because it was a perfect example of how focused, uh, innovative, single-minded, insular, and insane the Grateful Dead were in their quest for that holy grail of the perfect sound. And, of course, it was a moving target, but for a brief moment in time, the wall of sound gave them what they were looking for. The insane part comes with the amount of money they spent to build it and the sheer amount of brutal manual labor that it took to bring it out on the road, as is shown in the film, and the burnout it caused in that crew that did it anyway. And ultimately, you know, the band just forged ahead with it, no matter what it cost in dollars, human burnout. And I'll tell you what, the wall of sound wasn't the first or the last time that they were insane enough to forge ahead regardless of the ramifications. Yeah, that is uh, pretty cool, Rosie. Um, you know, I've got a question for you, something that I've always wondered about. I've seen pictures of that thing for my entire life. I never got a chance to hear it. But, of course, you know, I've been exposed to some amazing sound, uh, you know, in the modern age. And, in fact, uh, uh, Peter and I were at the uh, Roger Waters show a couple of weeks ago in quadraphonic sound. This is probably the highest end sound that exists today. How do you think the wall of sound compared back in the early 70s to today's sound? Oh, wow. That's a huge question that I, I, I'm not qualified to answer that, except that I did uh, hear the wall of sound twice, and it was crystal clear. And, well, I mean, I wasn't a mile away. The, the legend is that you could hear it clearly a mile away. Mm-hmm. But it was... Um, Uh, There was absolutely no distortion of any kind. It was whatever they were playing, you could hear it exactly. There was no fuzz, no crap, no nothing. It It was a work of art. It really was. Well, I just wondered if this is where the idea of a linear array came from, because they were talking about how they figured out if they stacked the speakers up, uh, they would get better sound out of it. And, and now linear arrays are, are like the go-to in concerts. So I wonder, right. is this the beginning of that? Bob, you might have something on that. Well, I, I'm not sure specifically, but I, I think it's important to understand that the um, wall of sound was not just a, a question of quality speakers, but there was a completely different approach to presenting the performance as well you were stacked above your head was your speakers. So the speakers that you played out, it was vertically aligned so that Phil was under his speakers. Bobby was playing under his speakers so that the image of the band was integrated into the presentation of the sound. That was my understanding. Of course, I, I never got to experience, but it, was, it wasn't just 
here's the high quality speakers. But the, the you know, once you had that, you also had to assign who was where. And of course, nowadays you have a stereo image and you assign that in the stereo field. You know, Bear was really adamant about mono as being the medium. And so he was aligning the images above the performer. So it was a yep. really, it was more radical than just fantastic speakers. You know what I mean? It was, they were pushing envelopes in many, many ways. The, uh, the microphones that had out of phase, you know, double microphones that you see them singing into, you know, they would right. sing into one microphone and the other microphone was out of phase. Well, otherwise you would have feedback because the speakers were behind you. Yes, but you get feedback no matter what. You know what I mean? They're, they're above you, but you're, that, those feedback loops, you know, the in the stage now, the sound is everywhere. You know, when you got on stage at the Grateful Dead show, you heard everything. It was also just, you know, where the, how to deal with the technology at the time, using the technology of the time to keep pushing that envelope. I think, you know, it was, it, it was, it's that full license to go for it. it. And so it doesn't stop in the speakers. It stops, it keeps going into conceptualizing it and how is this presented and, you know, these sort of visions explored, quite amazing things. It's only 10 years before that, that the Beatles can't hear themselves playing on stage and they're playing a re, uh, full stadiums where no one can really hear the music at all to this point where you're now like, um, you know, aiming for hearing the music as if you were on the stage anywhere in the crowd. It's a, it's a gigantic sonic leap that Bear was able to lead them on and that they were more than willing and able to go with. Well, you've said Bear now twice. We should make sure that everyone understands who that is. That's uh, Owsley Stanley or Augustus Owsley Stanley, uh, who was known as Bear. So, so, Bob, you mentioned you gave us a little more detail on the Wall of Sound. Give us another. What was your top moments from Act 4 of Long Strange Trip? Well, i got to say it's the Steve's, uh, Steve Parrish's uh, who's in charge speech. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, Steve <laughs> has always, as long as I've known him, he's been a great storyteller and it's so wonderful to see it captured. He was a student of history and would always talk about history and uh, as though it was a story coming out. And here he is, part of history, telling it as he experienced it. So I just love that scene. Of course, it was also something he would say you know, the situation's in charge. Let's go do this. It's something very zen about it. So let's go Tracy's number two moment. The talk about going to Egypt. I can't remember the man's name, but he said all manner of wickedness is how he described it. And, you know, how Jerry really got into it. I, I think almost too much into it. And, you know, and the footage was so great. All the photos and the video of that time and you see them walking around or on a camel. Uh, you know, it was. they said it was very, I guess, revealing to them in spiritual ways and expanding their music. Uh, I thought that was a very, very cool point of that episode. Yeah, it's very legendary of them going to Egypt in 78. Um, 
uh, you know, I, I remember having posters, I mean, the famous poster, of Jerry with his hair being blown back. I think that was taken there uh, in Egypt uh, in, 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 at that time. And I think the point that was being made was that them trying to recapture a bit of the spiritualism that had been lost, uh, even though maybe things were darker and uh, some of the drugs that were now being uh, imbibed weren't, uh, weren't good for the, uh, the community at large. Rosie, what else struck you about uh, episode four? One of my three was also uh, Steve Parrish, you know, who was in charge. I'm so glad you asked that. I mean, he's so entertaining. And he, he goes on to explain his concept of the situation is in charge. Anything that um, they caused an interruption in the smooth, smooth flow of events on the road was what was in charge. And it wasn't necessarily a person. And sometimes it was. but it just, to me, encapsulated the whole continuum from the acid test to everything that followed. But he left out the second part of the equation, which is for every situation that took charge because it was a problem, there had to be a person who had to step up and solve the problem to be in charge. And it could be anybody, whoever had the skill at the moment. And there were a few times where it was me. There were a few times, there was everybody. And when we traveled together, say, you know, Europe 72, and there was 50 of us, all these different things could happen. And it could be any of the 50 of us would have to step up and take charge of the situation because that person had the skill or the knowledge or the idea of what to do in the moment. And, and, you know, it harkens back to the whole living in the moment, which was the history of the Grateful Dead from day one, was living in the moment and dealing with things as they hit you in the face. So that, you know, I really like that. I think, uh, again, Steve seems to come up a lot in this episode, and I think he mentions that as a kind of a Taoism of the dead. Right. Well, and it, it also... Um, if I, if you don't mind, I give my third one at the same time, which kind of plays into the same idea. And that's at the very beginning of segment four, Phil saying, we were as open as possible, no preconceptions. This is what we learned at the acid test. You know, we can't, we can't underestimate how much the dead learned about openness at the acid test. And then all those years making music, while on acid with an audience of dancers that were as high as they were, all of us on any given night were as open as possible, no preconceptions, living in the present, be here now, anything can happen, um, don't be attached to a particular outcome, which is easy to say, but it's really hard to do. And the dead did it pretty much for 30 years. Rosie, I think you have hit something on the head there because that, you know, there's a point where Phil says, uh, I learned to come out uh, on stage and know that anything could happen. It didn't matter what the exactly. sound check was like. It didn't. And when you see the light in his eyes when he's saying that, you know, you could see the dosage. You know, you could <laughs> see, you know well, what I'm saying? It's, yeah. It gives you that, like, yes. That moment when everything is just crystal real to dance with, and uh, you feel that in the in the film. 
Yeah, it, it it runs throughout throughout the film, which is one of the beauty the beauties of this film. Is uh, I love this film, by the way. Well, what you what you just mentioned, both there's I think it that all leads up to the part where there's the shift in this episode where it comes to the end where they make the connection between the shift in drugs that were the coke heads versus the LSD heads, and I guess it was Rex Jackson that wouldn't let anyone up on stage during the Winterland finales unless they took an extra drop from the murine bottle, and he didn't want anyone on stage <laughs> dancing who was on coke. He only wanted people up there who were dosed. I thought that was pretty interesting in this kind of time. Period paradigm shift where everything that end and when you hear phil what you just said bob was interesting because you hear phil in this moment too uh saying that you know at the set at the when it ended they you know he didn't want it to end he he was afraid if that was the last set that would be it forever and everything in his life that was the best thing ever happened to him up until he met jill uh and then they go backstage after and you see the band and the crowd's going nuts and they're asking you guys gonna do another set you can do another set and they're sitting around going no no we don't have it in we don't have it in us you know but the crowd just wanted to go on and on and on they were just getting started you know yeah. I love I love how Bill Graham kind of tried to coax him out for a short one there. So, uh, Rosie, I take it you were at that 74 Winterland show? No, I was an intimate of the band from late 65 until mid-74. And segment four is all about 1974 and then later into Egypt, 78, when they came back and all that. So at the time that we opened... Act four, I was at the time their tour travel agent. Sam Cutler would book the tours and I would arrange all the flights, all the cars, the hotels for 35 to 40 people going to 40 cities. And I was very much feeling exactly what's described in that in that segment of the, you know, uh, cocaine had taken over the minds and, and uh, of the people. Things were not pleasant. Everything was hard-edged. It was not friendly. It wasn't kind and gentle. And it was a dark time. And the band was really, the band and crew and everybody was burned out. That was the hardest, one of the hardest jobs I ever had, being their uh, travel agent. And we were all just burnt out and crazy, and it just didn't work for me anymore. And so when I, in my case, I met somebody who I thought was not part of the scene. We started dating, we fell in love, and I followed him to Taos, and I was grateful to leave the scene behind. Well, as we all pretty much know, there's no such thing as leaving the Grateful Dead behind. Permanently, <laughs> but you know, I thought I was. Well, Rosie, what you were just talking about really it struck me as well. There was, on the one hand, the ideal that there was going to be this mass family and everybody and all the kids and all the wives and girlfriends and everybody was involved in the road crew. And on the other hand, Sam Cutler kept making the point where this is too big. There are too many voices at the table. Are we just a band or, or what are we? And I, I think the tensions that started coming up in the scene were, um, were revealed there, too. I, am I hearing that um, you, what you're saying is that it was the cocaine, really, that did it in, that the family, the group thing no. could have survived? No, 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 Was it just no, too no. big? It was just too big, the burnout, well, the constant uh, 
a quest. Of... There, there are so many factors that that played into that that 1974 burnout, and the cocaine was only part of the problem. Um, you know, it, it kind of overlaid everything because when there's a a drug that's predominant in a in a, any given scene, whether it's acid or or cocaine or alcohol or whatever it is, if that's a predominant thing, then it takes on those characteristics. But but it it doesn't determine what's at the heart of it. You know, and by then, by 1974, the family was kind of in the background. You know, the women were in the background and the the band had been traveling hard hard traveling rock band uh, for years and that's its own family its own uh, I don't know what to call it I guess family just from a, a different perspective at the end of the scene which is uh, where I came from which was uh, LA scene um, Motown scene uh, working with Stevie was really kind of a kingdom uh, compared to a family. And when I got to the Grateful Dead, and you know, this was, they were already a machine. They were already a rock and roll machine, completely unlike any other rock and roll machine in the world. But when I started with them, they still had, I think I attended two or three community meetings where the entire employee base of a hundred and I don't know, 20 people would come in <laughs> to discuss policy. After the three meetings I went to, they decided that this was too cumbersome. They'd rent a, you know, a ballroom in some ho local hotel and everybody would get together. And it was, I mean, you know, it was it, to, from, from the LA kind of other side of the w rock and roll world. Or yeah, very high, very hierarchical, Bob, uh, compared to this. Yes, I can imagine. Well, it, it's just a different, it was like, oh my, my God, they're, they're inviting, uh, they're inviting opinions by somebody who's, uh, you know, packaging things for mail order. And that seemed like what, it just was mind blowing to me. But and this was, you know, very late on. But the, the, it it still maintained some sort of desire. That person who might have been uh, putting things in in mail order may have been around for thirty years, and have an opinion that was valid for them to hear, and they were open to it. it you know, it became cumbersome to sort of deal with that at the at those numbers. But even though it wasn't the family that Rosie knew in this sort of huge band making $52 million a year touring, it was an amazing phenomenon and, and certainly echoed something of those roots. I was very impressed coming from, you know, you know, let's meet with a lawyer at four o'clock in the morning kind of vibe that we used to do at Stevie's. So the who's in charge vibe was still, still going on right up to the end, it sounds like. That's really so, interesting because I had, I had no idea that that was true. The communal aspects uh, maintained uh, its grip from uh, from the early days, uh, right there until the end. It seems. Yes, wow. and, and a piece of the who's in charge energy that I sort of have experienced uh, echoes of in throughout the entire film is 
part of that psychedelic energy of surrendering control. There were people stepping up, just like Rosie was saying. And if you had a solution, it it didn't really matter where it came from. If you had a different exactly. idea, it, it it just it just didn't it didn't matter. It was looking at the situation and to you know, does Bob have a solution? Does Rosie have a solution? Does Tim have a solution? And they look at it. Um, and I felt that in the studio. I also felt that there were lots of things I had no solutions for, so I'd keep my mouth shut at those times. But uh, uh, there was one there was one meeting that we had. This wasn't a community meeting, but sort of a crew band kind of meeting, and there was business, and we were going to do a stadium tour. And Candace needed some more money for the, for the lights uh, because we were beefing it up for the stadiums. So there was a lot of discussion by the band members about you know, spending this extra money and things like that. And at one point, Jerry said, hell, give her the money. We don't know why they come. Maybe it's the lights. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of that's true. I can remember that in the 80s. I loved the lights. Of course. (laughs) But, But it's that awareness. It's that it's that awareness that that things are coming from not just me, that there's a group sense and this group is not limited to the band, but it's it's ex- by extension to all people participating. And uh, as I think uh, uh, at a later episode, Donna Jean speaks of it so clearly in terms of the uh, songs that you own the song when it re- when you found those Hunter lyrics and that Garcia thing and you knew you had felt some sort of diamond light there. You owned it, and that the audience was part of it. And for me, having seen the um, sort of the end part of that trip and always curious about how this could have happened, of course, some of the answers came when I started uh, dosing heavy with uh, TC, but um, other other pieces of it came in with when you see exactly what Rosie is saying. It wasn't, it, whoever was helping, whoever was adding, was adding. And you weren't, you know, you weren't just doing this piece. You weren't just stuffing those envelopes. You weren't just, um, uh, you know, buying strings. You weren't just doing that. The, everybody was open. And, and to hear Rosie talk about it is wonderful for me. I'm wondering, Tracy, as the uneducated person here, is there anything that you can take as as a manager of a band now and, and being in the business? Is there anything from this that you said, hmm, I should try that or, hmm, I'm going to stay away from that? Well, I think one of the things I'm going to stay away from is having 120 on staff at the board meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I want to shoot, I want to, just put this out there. I am fascinated by Bob and Rosie right now. So I am getting very dedicated at the moment. I, I love the part that they were a unit, a true band, that there wasn't someone that, oh, you know, as Jerry said, maybe it's the lights. You know, he didn't say, well, it's me. You know, I'm so great. I, I love that spirit of, you know, just being a family community, you know, a team band. That That really stands out to me a lot. And Bob, what else from this episode really um, jumped out at you? We hit the wall of sound, which is 
quite, for me as a technical person, you know, very, very fascinating. And I, I suppose for me, there was also a very powerful sadness uh, about the sense of the uh, drugs turning bad. Because, uh, you know, we've, I don't know about you guys, but I've all, we've, most of the people I know have had, had some sort of negative space with that. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know if it's, if it's this episode or not, but there's one point where Steve says, if you are taking drugs to avoid yourself, you will not be there. But if you are taking drugs to explore yourself, there will be a lot to be found, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And mm-hmm. That was this episode, yes. That was very, very powerful for me. Because, and it's sort of foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Jerry. Uh, yes, and, and, but also it gives you a very, very clear direction in which to view the act of taking drugs and recreational drug taking, if whatever people wanted to call that. But uh, it certainly uh, has the power to enlighten but it is also power to completely isolate, and I've, uh, I would I would have say that as a, you know Steve's second speech there is <laughs> hit me too. That was a, a a big favorite for me because it was you know you can you can see that those t- that delineation throughout I don't know throughout my friends throughout the Grateful Dead throughout you know uh, when I was there, cocaine was not welcome on stage. It was there. And there were band members using it, um, but did not have this sort of positive reception by people. It was more hidden because of the nature of, of that, that whole energy is, can, can turn so bad, you know. I, I think you hit on something there with Steve Parrish with the drugs and the change. One of the interesting kind of lighter moments is when he brings in that when drugs started getting there, he talked about nitrous, right? There's something he says in this episode that's interesting, the way he talked about when you're on nitrous and your brain is lacking oxygen and you're just thriving on nitrous and you're almost dead, you're gratefully dying. And if you're laughing while you're doing it, it's funny, man, and everything makes sense and you can't get back there. And there's this whole thing there. And then we cut right which we did in the last episode. I want to bring this up because this is one of these things that's kind of, I don't know, John Perry Barlow's coming in as the, like the doomsayer, like he, whatever, all of a sudden we cut to John, Jay, John Perry Barlow. And it's like, uh, you know, there's Jerry who, you know, wanted to have the hell's angels around who, you know, were misogynists and uh, they were evil and, you know, evil has no place at the table. And I'm like, I'm like, so my, I have the one thing about this. I love John. You know, it was a little extreme calling Hell's Angels evil, and Jerry had to defend that a little bit. I I certainly had to go through my own personal adjustments when big group of Hell's Angels would come on stage, and I it sent a lot of fear through me. And eventually, you know, I met all of the guys who'd hang out a lot, and they were wonderful, at least to me. so I, I, I uh, learned a lot about my prejudice, but it's, it's, no, it's no secret that there was a lot of violence connected with the Hells Angels. And uh, I think Jerry was not really scared of anarchy. And so he, if something came on, he let it come on because that's the energy that was happening. We never talked about that, but uh, I, I got that feeling from him. He always described New York City as a study in anarchy. Right on. Well... 
some of this reminds me of the positively space music that Bob Love is making. And I just want to take a moment to give a plug for that. It's some wonderful new music that Bob is making with uh, Henry Kaiser and Chris Muir. And I think if people like the improv, um, they should uh, be on the lookout for this new record from Bob Brillo. Uh, thank you. We just recently played a premiere performance, and it was wonderful. It was a blast. Before we wrap up talking about Act 4 here, we get into the second part of the show with a little more t- uh, talking to Rosie and Bob about the whole thing. We've been we've been diving pretty deep so far, so we're going to get a little bit deeper. But I want to first uh, go back to Tracy before you head out, Tracy, and kind of give us your overall thoughts now about The Grateful Dead. Loved, uh, you know, and as, as most everyone on this call has uh said the whole point about who gets the most attention that day or what gets the most attention that day that's who's in charge here you know i loved that and then it was interesting to me when it was said that uh, garcia didn't want to be the leader you know that you know because i definitely knew the name jerry garcia even though i'm very undeducated i knew that name didn't know any of the others but he's the one that said he didn't want to be the leader that was interesting uh, you know, and, and when they, they were so burnt out, and you guys have elaborated on that so much, wow, that was mind-blowing. They were going to make the film, and Jerry had always wanted to direct a film. I would have loved to have heard more about that. You know, um, when there was a, a point when he was uh, absolutely determined to do a film of the Sirens of Titan, and he owned the rights, the film rights, to the Kurt Vonnegut uh, novel of Sirens of Titan. And it was, uh, we, we, uh, we spent some time talking about it. Uh, you know, the, I reread it with, uh, with that in mind. You know, when he mentioned it, he said, go read it again and we'll talk. And um, it, it just, it, his vision was really, really different. I don't know if, Tracy, if, if you know uh, Sirens of Titan, but it's a wild book. And uh... no, but I'm going to. <laughs> yes, I just wrote that down as soon as you said it. And they didn't get into it in this episode, Tracy, but Jerry was also a painter and, and did a, a lot of painting. Um, so he was an artist through and through and through. Wow. Yes, he's, he's, his, uh, his paintings are really. Uh, it's just they 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 show a few sketches about the Frankenstein's that he's he's done, but just amazing personality. I mean, just like his music, it has you hear a, a, a note from Jerry Garcia, you know who it is right away, and you can see that in his painting. It's just it's got a certain kind of feel, a scrawl, a something that speaks to him right away. It's really amazing. Um, I I just have a, some thoughts about. Jerry not wanting to be the leader, being the leader, and all of that. Um, you, you know, granted, the whole worship of St. Jerome, uh, the idea of Jerry as a prophet and everything, came into that, that scene pretty late in the game where people were, were uh, taking that view of him. But you know what? He was always the leader from day one. He was the one that had vision and he had depth and he was incredibly articulate in interviews. He was the one that got interviewed even early on in the early days 
because he was so articulate and quotable. Even at the beginning of the film, the guys in the band say uh, how they regarded him with some reverence at the very beginning. You know, I, I wrote down a few quotes here. Bill said, it's really fun being in a band with your musical guiding light. And Phil said uh, he was going somewhere, and if I could help him go there, that would be great. And Bob said they were all my older brothers, but Jerry had the most to say. And so, you know, that I just wanted to throw that in that that all along it wasn't just at the end when he had the he felt the weight of the responsibility of people looking at him in a way that was unreal. But in the in the heart of it, he was the leader from the very beginning. That's great. All right, we're going to wrap. I want to say goodbye. Before we go, though, on, on part one here, I want to say Tim is the host of KPFA's Dead to the World every Wednesday at 8 p.m. PST on kpfa.org. You can listen to it. Uh, I want to thank Tim for joining us every week as a guest host. Well, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. I look forward to hearing part two. And uh, Tracy, I'm going to have to go look up um, Fireball now because I'm a big Bluegrass fan as well. Oh, yes. Thank you. Please do. So, Tracy, you kind of jumped in headfirst into this Grateful Dead world. You've uh, you've been talking for the last half an hour with some of the closest people who have been to the dead besides the band themselves. You've watched Long Strange Trip. Uh, what, what were you going to take away from this, uh, the Grateful Dead, kind of into your life? Are you any more interest in listening or exploring further? Absolutely. Definitely going to download some music. I'm going to watch all of the episodes now and listen to all the podcast going forward and I'm going to read this Sirens of Titan. I I'm I, and explore Jerry Garcia a little more as such a, a very broad artist, but even though he had broad talents, he was very focused and accomplished at so many of them and it's just great. I I really appreciate the opportunity to be involved in this because I love to learn things and uh, well, I should say I have really enjoyed and I'm enjoying becoming dedicated. So thank you again. Then thanks to everyone on the call. I, I really enjoyed learning from all of you. Thanks, thank you, Tracy. Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Great to have you, Tracy. You're going to have to check out Dead and Company, too. You have a chance to see them with John Mayer. You, you can still, there's, it's not too late to get on the bus. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do it. I've got all my, I'm writing all these things down. All right. Thank you, Tracy Simmons Bula, for joining us. Check out Fireball Mail at Fireball Mail Band. And now we're going to get into part two of the show where, well, we, you know, in the first part, uh, our special guests, Rosie McGee and Bob Raylove, who have been involved closely with the Grateful Dead in various forms, both in the early days and latter days, uh, have dropped us, some, given some great uh, insider stories. But Christian's going to talk a little bit further with them now. So, But they're going to talk about the entire movie from beginning to end. Everything is up for grabs, including the spoiler alert now that Jerry dies at the end, folks. That's I'm going to warn you now. Pause the documentary. Uh, go watch it. It's by Amir Barlev. Come back here and listen now with Christian. Christian. 
Okay, guys, let's get to the second half of the show here where we can talk about the entire movie and talk about your uh, experiences uh, with the dead. What I really love about this uh, portion here, especially with you two, is, Rosie, we get the, the beginnings of the, the Grateful Dead because you were there from, uh, from 65 to 74. And, Bob, we get the end of the Grateful Dead because you were there from about 85 to, to 95. So, Rosie, let's start with you. Um, like I said, you were at the very beginning uh, or very close to it. So please let our listeners hear about how you first came in contact with the boys in the band. Okay. Be happy to. So I was uh, in 1965, late in 1965. I was in San Francisco. I was working in the music business for Big Daddy Tom Donahue who had a record label, Autumn Records, and I was already a photographer, and he brought the Grateful Dead, who were not yet known as the Grateful Dead. He brought what, the, were they the still the Warlocks into, at that time? No, it was in between. For, one, for that one night, he brought them into the studio to record a demo with the idea that he might sign them to Autumn Records. They weren't the Warlocks anymore, but they hadn't become the Grateful Dead, so they came in as the emergency crew for that one night. I don't mm. think they ever played a gig as the emergency crew. Anyway, that was the night I met them. And um, But as far as coming into the dead scene, you know, other people have talked about when did you get on the bus and was, was it the music, was it Jerry, was it this, was it that. For me, it wasn't the music or even the scene. It was because Phil and I met, and we got romantically involved. And uh, our first uh, half dozen dates were dropping acid together at the acid tests with the band. And so romantic. To, uh, yeah, well, it, it, it had its moments, i got to tell yeah. you. But, uh, hey, 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 yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's romantic. Hey, hey, hey. Let's delve deeper yeah. into that, Rosie. No way. I don't talk out of I school kid, even I now. Kid, I kid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, this led to uh, a four-year live-in relationship as Phil's girlfriend. And as I said earlier, the first two and a half years of living with Phil, we lived with the entire Grateful Dead. And uh, at first it was when they had moved to L.A. and they were down there. For five months, uh, they had followed the pranksters to do acid tests down in L.A., and uh, Owsley Bear had, uh, he had been, he financed the whole thing, and it, it probably is what got them to actually go for going to L.A., which was kind of crazy anyway, but um, they went to L.A., and with Ken Kesey and Pranksters, and Owsley became their benefactor, bought all their own, bought, bought all their equipment, and uh, paid the rent, and, but he was also their, what I called his, their benevolent dictator, because he told them how to live, and so we lived in LA for five months, then we came back up, but anyway, I mean, there's, I could go on. I mean, I wrote a whole book about it. So. Well, we'll take, from, it, we'll take uh, it in pieces, but that's how you met. And you, you actually, you started that's as That's how as we Bill, met, and that's Bill's how I, yeah. 
Uh, Sarah's and, Phil's girlfriend, and we all lived together in a house in L.A. Then we moved to Olympali, then um, then eventually into the Haight-Ashbury at 710 Ashbury. 710, yeah. And, and so and, from, yeah, so that's how it all started. And, Bob, you came in at the end. So now, uh, you know, you were in the music business before. You know, obviously we've talked a little bit about working with Stevie Wonder. Um, so uh, how did you get introduced to the dead, and how did you come to work for them? Well, I was uh, working on a Grammy show, uh, a presentation with uh, uh, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, Thomas Dalby, and Howard Jones. And I had all these synthesizers, hold this high-end synthesizers that I was responsible for on the stage. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Was it was fun? It was. Uh, they cut together a bunch of uh, each other's songs that had all been number mm -hmm. one. Rocket mm -hmm. and I yeah. just called to say I love you. And uh, uh, I think Hyperactive was uh, Thomas's Dolby's thing. And uh, Howard Jones had a. And spent the night jamming together the night the night before the rehearsal. But we finished the rehearsal, and everything went well. And as I was uh, about to store the equipment, you know, for where it needed to be, this guy comes up to me, and he says, so, you operate all these machines? And I go, yeah, I do that for Steve. And he says, well, you ever interested in doing a soundtrack for TV? I said, sure. Uh, and we exchanged numbers, and that was Merle Saunders. Oh, And yeah. so he invited me to do the Twilight Zone sessions with the Grateful Dead. They were going on the road and off the road. We had a commitment. I had, uh, at that point, I had a two-month break from Stevie. We had just finished a record. We were planning to do a tour. I think that one lasted about seven months. So I had this two two month break and we just went in and did all these episodes in which I met all of the band. And then when, uh, and you know, I was orchestrating things for them and for Merle and uh, doing all my synthesizer work. And then when they um, uh, decided to, to do In the Dark, uh, they were looking for new keyboard sounds initially. And uh, they called me up and invited me to do some session work with them. Well, you know, I'd start to meet everyone in the band. Everybody would have some idea, and I'd explore that idea with them, you know, things for Mickey or, you know, things for Bill, or everybody started wanting to use me. And they said, they said, um, why don't you come on tour? We're going to do this tour with Bob Dylan. And uh, why don't you come on tour? I'd worked with Dylan before with Stevie. And uh, why don't you come on out and uh, put the sounds that we've gotten on the record, make sure we can get close to them on stage. And uh, I did that. And that was sort of a, just a summer gig. Um, and everything worked out wonderfully. It was an amazing experience for me. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, at the end of that, I, I came, there was a band meeting, and at one point I, I said, you know, uh, it's the end of my contract now. Uh, what, what, do you, uh, what do you guys want to do? He said, well, I think, I think it was uh, 
I think it was Weir who said, uh, we, we've got a band meeting upstairs. Just hang out here and we'll call you. So they called me in. Everybody went around the room and this, you know, they said, well, I, I, I'd like to use you. And the other, next guy would say, I'd like to use you. I'd like to use you. I'd like to use you. And then Billy looked up at me and said, well, I want to use you too. So hang out as long as you're having a good time. <laughs> and that was the only job description I ever had. Wow, that's great. That's great. So, Rosie, let's talk a about your photography. Um, uh, when and how did you start as a photographer? When I was, uh, my father was a photography hobbyist. And when I was about 11 or 12, he lent me his camera to go document some event. I think it was a, a school graduation that I was taking part in. And uh, I, I found it really interesting, and I really liked the experience. And from that moment on, I was compelled to document my life with photographs. And so I became, through school and, and high school and a little bit of college, I was the girl with the camera. And I was just taking pictures. I don't know why. I was just compelled to do that. So fast forward to... Uh, I'm in the middle of the heart of the beast with the Grateful Dead. I'm still the girl with the camera. So, no, fortunately, uh, I was able to capture some of the photos of the earliest days with the band because I was there. I was an intimate. I was a friend. And they were used to seeing me be there with a camera. And, and I had total access. It was no big deal. And... Uh, for a long time, I thought of myself as a documentary photographer, and it was only when I started compiling the photos to, to do my book that I and choosing the photos that I realized, you know what, I'm actually a portrait photographer, you know, intimate, candid portraits, because most of my photos of the band are individual portraits. They might be on stage or they might be on a horse or they might be whatever they're doing, but it's, it's mostly individual catching them in that moment where I try to capture their, their personality or their thought. Or, um, so that's, that's pretty much it. And I still, I mean, I still have a camera, not all the time, but I have camera with me a great deal of the time. I now take a lot of scenic photos I love to travel, and so I take travel photos, and, you know, it's just natural for me to have a camera in my hand. Yeah, definitely in your book, Dancing with the Dead, a photographic memoir, my good old days with the Grateful Dead in the San Francisco music scene, 1964 to 1974, most of the photographs are very sort of like family pictures that uh, uh, you might see in a, a family album if you walked into somebody's house and pulled out their picture. Well, I don't know about that. My family doesn't take pictures like that. <laughs> well, the quality <laughs> is much better. True. But the I intimacy, mean, you know. the intimacy is there is, uh, is and, my and also the, there's a wonderful amount of pictures that are not stage lit you know they're just they're natural light and which is think is really tough well, you know, there's, there's a reason for that you know as as uh, uh i mean i love the natural light but as uh, i started going to gigs with the dad 
and I had my camera and I tried really hard for a number of years to take concert photos in, uh, in, in stage lights. And I just didn't have the knowledge, the technique. I didn't even know how to learn it. I didn't know who to ask. And, and I would take these photos that were one of the hallmarks of my photography, I think, is composition. And they'd be composed really nicely, but technically they just weren't there. You know, it, it, they didn't look good. And after a while, I, I restricted my photography to outdoor gigs, if it, if it was a, a, a show. And behind the scenes was a little more my natural space of, uh, you know, we're having a, a family party or a barbecue or uh, the guys are on horseback at Mickey's Ranch. And I'm just there with a camera and really enjoying that. The natural light is much more my my cup of tea. It's funny how all of these things, uh, you, you know, this the, it, there's a certain randomness to it, but it, it in the end it creates this arc of uh, of your work that makes it completely unique. You know, nobody has those pictures but yeah. you. Yeah. Nobody has that kind That's of natural. True. Oh, here he is, just at the barbecue, or you know, it's wonderful. Thank you. So, so Bob, talk a little bit about your training uh, and how you got into music, uh, and then you know how you brought, especially um, uh, the MIDI capability, which was fairly new at the time in the the, the mid '80s, and began to use that on stage uh, with uh, with the Grateful Dead. Well, I did have formal training. I got a master's degree from San Francisco State in music composition. So, you know. Um, it's which really, really to me now I look back on it, I was thirsty for the language of mm. uh, music. And uh, I had to support myself through music school. And Did you so always I, know you were going to be a musician? I don't always know anything. <laughs> I mean, when you were young, did you did you say to yourself, "Oh, hey, I'm really good at this, and I'm going to pursue this"? And no, you went know, into band and all the other things that you know. No, many... I I followed things. I took piano lessons. I I loved it. Um, but early on, of course, my father had to te tell me to keep practicing. You know, just like any other kid. I still feel uh, like I'm exploring new stuff all the time. It's all new material. Uh, it, it's it's really I just feel uh, that it's just something that has fallen to me, and I luckily have had the talent, skill, training, discipline, whatever to to embrace it. It's uh, you know uh, of course you know the uh, orchestral kind of work that I was doing then was uh, you know it's written it's a written language of to describe music, and so of course the first thing I have to do is go to some guy who's blind to start working with Stevie <laughs> <laughs> to get a completely different right. look at it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then from there, which was, you know, sort of this one person in control, uh, Motown scene energy. I like how you said a kingdom, yes. Yeah, to another perspective on that too, to just the opposite. So it's-, it's Democracy it's, at its finest. Yes, exactly. And and also, uh, I mean, it, it keeps coming so strong for me on the on the issue of uh, for the throughout the entire film that something 
different happens when you share. When you share responsibility, you share direction, and that you are looking for something that you don't know what it is, but you'll recognize it when it comes up. Quincy Jones once said that when you go into the studio to make a record, you have to leave enough room for God to enter the room. Wow. And, um, they say the muse is, uh, find, you find the muse in between the notes. Yes. Well, this is, this is the thing, is to understand that, that and I, I keep seeing it, you know, in the, in the film, it kept coming back to me. Oh, you know, here was, even back to the, uh, the Watts Towers, here's this guy working alone, creating something immovable. And Jerry saying, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I want to take this. And, um, you know, one of the ways that it doesn't, it stops being your controlled thing is to say, okay, well, you know, let's do your songs. Let's do this. Let's take it in a different direction. It starts to open up the things in a way that his not wanting to be the definitive leader, I mean, he was musically the leader because he had such amazing talent and he had such clarity and such generosity of spirit in playing um, that of course you wanted to, to get his approval. But at the same time, he didn't want to tell people what to do. He didn't want to tell, uh, he didn't want to define the Grateful Dead in terms that, that were uh, dictatorial. And that kind of sharing sets up the possibility of an energy resonance that creates community. And uh, it keeps coming back to me as I saw the film. It was really quite striking that, you know, you just can't be in control of everything. I was just going to say, Rosie, please comment on that because you <laughs> saw this yeah, from the no, beginning. I was, I was holding my breath because he was so articulate with something. Thank you. With that. But the, the, the part, the sharing of responsibility, the sharing, just the sharing came from, again, we go back to the very beginning. We go back to the acid test which were really the the uh, formation of uh, of them the as, a, as a group yeah of, and watching of, Kesey and right. the pranksters and how they did things and the 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 fact well, that uh, that Cassidy was there and he you know and all of that that meant so much to them that was, some of them were their heroes well what i was going to say was the the sharing of responsibility for even as they moved out of the acid test but what they learned from the acid test that they weren't separate from the audience. They weren't separate from the other attendees at the acid test. We were all in the room together and we were there for the night, you know, and, and we were all high together. And they took that with them outside of the acid test and on throughout their entire history of sharing the responsibility for the event that is a, a concert with the audience, which, as Bob said, developed community in a way that has never happened with any other band that I can think of, and is true to this day. Uh, the, that that the whole 
we're all together in it. And the band can't be the Grateful Dead without that audience. And the audience can't be who they are without the Grateful Dead. And it's the whole that's way bigger than the sum of the parts. And, and that audience is amazing. Uh, my first tour, I was, uh, we were at Telluride at the Harmonic Convergence Festival. I thought I'd, I'd get something from, you know, some corn or something out from some vendor before the show. And I walked out uh, to to get the, this, you know, piece of corn. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't spend much time out in the audience at first because I, I had a job to do. I was taking it very seriously. I, yeah. I was terrified to leave the stage. It was hours before the show. I walked out. Some guy comes up to me and starts talking about Brent's presets that he had heard Brent play a sound he had never heard before. And somehow he figured it out to approach me about it. <laughs> wow. That's pretty specific. <laughs> and it blew me away. I was, I have to be honest, I put a little, made me a little scared because I, oh my God, they, they're really paying attention to that level of detail. But they are. Of course, you, you at first you think, oh, they're paying no. a level of, of detail and they're going to be critical because they're paying that much attention. But they were supportive and loving in that process of of, of being uh, critical. It was really quite an amazing thing. It's an amazing audience. I, yeah. I'm laughing because uh, because nobody pays more attention to the details than fervent deadheads. Oh, that's true. I mean... You know, and and the other thing, not in the music world, it, definitely not. No, I mean, it's just it's it's insane. It's insane, but but uh, very endearing in a, in a good way. It's in some ways, um, you know, I, I, I've heard this several times in this conversation. There there is um, a cult like religious aspect to uh, the fandom uh, in a sense. But there's in 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 you, you, I know you guys have seen these preachers who like try to to break down every Bible verse and and exactly what it means and of course they're crazy in their own way and in many ways it's dangerous you don't see that in a Grateful Dead uh, fan or a Deadhead but there is some similarity to to that 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 they want to know the detail and by god somebody needs to tell them exactly what this means you mean like al franken's well, althea <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah go ahead the Rob. problem is that there is the what is the truth or the accuracy or the the real deal is subject to interpretation in many cases oh of course and and you know, I mean, when I was writing my book, I was very aware of trying to get at least the chronology and the facts straight as best I could, because people read and they go, wait a minute, that That's didn't now happen I on remember September it, right. 13th, that happened on September 14th, what's the matter with you, Rosie? <laughs> and it's like, okay, okay. But yes, but uh, anyway, the the level of detail is is pretty incredible. In, yes, in which, the, uh, the which apostle 
which apostle do you most uh, closely resemble, Rosie? Basically, is uh, is the situation here. So, um, let me let me ask you a couple of things about uh, going through the book and and, and seeing uh, many of the pictures. And we and we talked a little bit about the intimacy of that. That one thing that struck me was this: what appeared to be this happy time at Mickey's ranch. Is, is that accurate? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Rosie? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I I go back in order to understand the happy times at Mickey's Ranch. I go back to the beginning where the first two and a half years with the Grateful Dead, not just with me, but, you know, I came in pretty early on. So I'll just say the first three years of the, of the dead, when they all lived together. And they lived together, they rehearsed at their house, they could fall out of bed and pick up a guitar and play anytime. So um, that set up a whole, um, was the beginning of the group mind in a way that most bands don't have that luxury. You know, they have to get in a car and go to the rehearsal hall or whatever. Yeah, that's what I do. after... Yeah, and after the and and uh, after we left the Haight Ashbury at the end of the summer of love, the beginning of '68, uh, where the Haight had uh, become pretty dark and destroyed, uh, we all moved out to Marin in these different ranches, these small properties, different properties, and it was one family or a cup two couples and a few kids and some dogs you know whatever with different configurations but for the first time we didn't have a headquarters we didn't have a home we didn't have a place where we were all with each other all the time and so it just changed the nature of our relationships and we got more fragmented and we got together at the gigs but and we'd have barbecues and stuff. Then when Mickey got his ranch, he rented it in uh, I think it was the beginning of '69. All of a sudden, there was room for a new headquarters for the band. And when he took the barn and turned it into a recording studio, and there were all these little houses and and sheds and different things, people were living all over the ranch and then kind of moved in and out at random. It became a place to go. And, and there were horses and there was a, a rope swing over the Creek. And, and we had, uh, Mickey was very, very uh, social and really enjoyed having people come over and we'd all make a bunch of food and, and we'd just be over there all the time. And so it was a really happy time. And it was a special place. It was beautiful, and especially when the weather was nice. It's in the, uh, Novato. So, uh, yeah, those happy times. So at that point, um, when you've seen these pictures, I was talking to you earlier about one of the favorite photos of mine that people like to, to acquire is Jerry on a horse. Which yeah. Is, you know, it's just kind of a, a weird, it's just so odd, and it's so endearing, is this photo of Jerry on a horse. 
was from that period at Mickey's Ranch, and we just had a really good time there. Uh, Mickey had it for, I think, 12 years, and and it gave us a place, uh, another headquarters to get together and, and come together as a family, as a group, and just have some good time. So uh, you've seen those photos. That's That's what that was about. Yeah. Now, now, Bob, <clears throat> talk about getting on stage and playing uh, that space between drums and space. Well, it, it, it sort of happened kind of gradually. Of course, it seems sudden to me, but um, uh, Mickey was ending drums uh, every night with a beam solo. Oh, the beam. The beam, and so, and that that was heavily processed and going through delays and reverbs, and you know, an amazing, amazing instrument that uh, you know will educate anyone on low end frequencies. <laughs> you really feel it, <laughs> uh, and uh, but um, there was a, a certain sameness to the end of that section uh, of the show. So at one point. I started bringing in little notes and things like that uh, just because they were things that, that I knew Mickey liked. And uh, little, uh, at first they were tape things that I, I'd put together. Mickey then, you know, pick up his head and say, you know, bring it up, bring it up. And then he'd start playing into these things. And when I had that, sound going on i felt like it gave him permission to wander away from that ending that he was sort of locked into for those those couple of months and walk off stage and go yell at jerry and say it's time for you to go on uh and still maintain both the beam resonating and these other sort of ambient sounds so i would uh i would do that and then uh he would let me go uh, after the solo to start really playing stuff and doing stuff. And I eventually, you know, it, it got to a point where uh, it was expected. He'd sort of walk off and throw, throw the beam mallet at me and say, it's your turn. <laughs> okay, go do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would get, I would, you know, just pull down the faders very, very quickly when, when the uh, frontline guys came out, when Phil and Jerry and Bobby and sometimes Brent would come out. And it was, uh, you know, just I, w I was like very clear. I had a little spot here and I was going to get out of their way. So I was behind the drum riser. So I was using, I had a 48 input console full of electronic drums. So uh, I was, I, I could sort of flip a switch and instead of them controlling it, I would control it. Mm -hmm. So I'd have all those synthesizers and try to come out of wherever they had been playing and move it into something and then quickly get out of the way of the frontline guys. Well, Phil comes walking by as he passes me behind the riser. He's walking around. He comes about out from Jerry's tent walking behind me. He pulls my headphone off my head off of one ear and yells, keep playing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's when I, ju I just sort of felt full license. <laughs> there you go. Go ahead. And, and I would, 
wander in with them and they would play with me for a little bit and then I'd get out of the way. You know, I knew they weren't there to hear me. The audience was there to hear them. But if I could build that segue and make that interesting and inspire those guys, I knew I was doing something right. I think that's what Phil was trying to say there. So, uh, hey, Rosie, I, there, there's a lot of really great photographs in in the book, and and but there's two that that uh, I I'm struggling. I, I want to ask you about one. I'm gonna throw them both out there, but I, I really want to know about the second one. So the first one, I'm sure I know you're French, and I'm I'm sure I'm gonna mangle this, but that 1971 picture of Jerry Garcia at the Chateau de Ourville. Uh, is 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 really a, a stunning uh, uh, photograph of of Jerry. But what I want to know about are the tie-dyed teepees. <laughs> the tie-dyed teepees. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. If you don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. The in 1970, Warner Brothers wanted to capitalize on the success of the Woodstock film. Mm-hmm. and and do their own film. And so they came up with this uh, idea, was suggested to them, to bring Woodstock on the road, essentially, and to do a caravan across the United States in the summertime with a whole bunch of you know, lo- local hippies from San Francisco, whoever they could get, and and uh, paint a bunch of buses and go have a caravan across. And then each few days or several times on the way across, they would put up a festival in some place in, in the country or in the desert or whatever. They'd do an outdoor festival and, and create an outdoor festival. They would fly in the acts that were on Warner Brothers Records to play at these uh, pop-up festivals and be filmed and then go all the way across the country and then fly to England to finish it in in, uh, London and Canterbury. Well, the Mm -hmm. Grateful Dead were scheduled to be the house band for this filming. And and, uh, that's why I knew about it and all of that. In Mm -hmm. the end... The night before the caravan took off, uh, John McIntyre, who was then the Grateful Dead's manager, pulled them off the deal because it was a really bad idea for them to go. And it was one of the smartest decisions that John ever made as a manager, even though it was at the 11th hour. But anyway, in the getting to launching the festival, and, and it ended up 125 people. I don't know how many buses, trucks, cars, and all of that were going to take off. They wanted it to look like a hippie caravan. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things, somebody came up with tie-dyed teepees. Let's tie-dye some teepees. <laughs> and they called in an, a, a, an English um, designer, tie-dye uh, artist named at the time, I think her name was Maureen Titcomb. And she was a known tie-dye artist in London. And she somehow figured out the logistics and the engineering to tie-dye teepees. They called me in because I had been doing tie-dyes for some time. They called me in to assist her. And in a, I think it was only a 
six-day period in a uh, warehouse in San Francisco, we tie-dyed 11 20-foot canvas teepees, which weigh 80 pounds dry. Wow. And, And it was an amazing thing. But the photo that's in my book of them, it was the one time that we were able to put them all up during the caravan was in Virginia towards the end of the caravan. We were in this meadow and we put up all 11 of the teepees. We'd carried the poles with us the whole time. We had erected them a bunch of times during the caravan, but this was the only time that we had all 11 of them. And I went up on the hill above and took a picture of the, of the teepees. It was gorgeous. Yeah, it's a wonderful shot. It's a wonderful shot. Thank you. Thank hey, you. Hey, Bob, m- move us into the, the 90s. Uh, the, the film makes it look like the wheels are coming off, especially with Jerry. Did you see that yourself? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, he was... Uh, it's a funny thing because uh, certainly uh, he would still have plenty of brilliance consistently whether it was talking about a movie i mean um uh, you know one of the things about jerry speaking is is that uh is that old adage that uh, you know any idiot can make something simple sound uh complex but it takes true genius to make something complex sound simple mm. jerry had that ability he had an ability to sort of, you know, you could talk about a movie and he would just go right to the heart of it. He would talk about music and go right to the heart of it. Um, and he could still do that. But then there would be times when things, you know, were not so much fun for him. Clearly, there was there was um, one moment when he he had been coming from his dressing room and sort of uh, it was before the show. He was heading towards his tent area, and I was standing by the back riser with the uh, electronic drum scene there. And he came up and kind of got talked very, very close to me. Not in your face, angry, but he was really in my face, and I could see he'd been blazing, absolutely fire streaming off of his head. Um, and it was a moment where we were just kind of casually chatting and it was before the show, the house lights were on indoor arena. I could barely stay focused on what he was saying because of all the people screaming his name, Mm. uh, just, just to, you know, he's right in my face talking and, and I almost felt like he was sharing that that reality with me at that time, because it was it, what it was like to carry that weight around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause you could not, and, and also he was giving those people the opportunity to see him because he knew they wanted that because mm. he was about to disappear into that tent. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, it was, it was a very complex moment, if you know what I mean, but, but yeah. they were just screaming his name and it was a very, uh, it was a big weight. It was a big weight. And when, you know, when he, we had the collapse that, uh, where we canceled that, that fall tour, he was exhausted. Yeah. 
you know, he was exhausted. I spent some time, we, we tried to score some silent films during that break, he and I. Um, but of course, he started picking very, you know, he was picking Dr. Caligari's cabinet. And at some ooh. point, he, huh? I said, ooh. Yeah. And at one point, you know, and he'd just come out of a, you know, a collapse. And at one point, when we, and I had built this sophisticated MIDI setup that we were tracking the films and, and stuff like that. And at one point, he just turned to me and said, you know, I can't do this. This is too depressing, this film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we stopped. But, um, uh, and then he, and I think he got, he just went off into painting after that because the next couple of times I saw him up at the house was, uh, he was he was often in the in the um, garage doing some airbrush work, but it was you know it was it was it was tough. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, look, I, I'm not a historian. There's lots of details that I'm not familiar with, but I, I you know you did get the sense. And there's sometimes I remember feeling it was uh, it was particularly bad one night when I sort of felt like oh. Why didn't that solo work? And I realized he was on the wrong fret. Yeah. It's like he'd pulled off the solo, but it just slipped to the wrong fret and he didn't correct for the whole solo. But after the solo, he kind of corrected. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, he's in another place. Not a good uh, place. Yeah. 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 And, but, uh, but at the same time, two songs later, pure genius. The magic, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. Well, let's talk about the 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 overall film. Uh, let me get each of you your your favorite moment in the this four hour document uh, on the Grateful Dead. Rosie, I'll, I'll let you go first. Uh, that's really hard. I have no favorite moment, but I would like to make a statement about my feelings about the whole film. If that's sure. Uh, Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I've been thinking about this. I've seen the film three times now. Uh, first time I was, it was glorious. I was able to be at the Castro Theater at, for the San Francisco Film Festival premiere. Mm -hmm. And the Castro is one of those beautiful oh, movie, yeah, old palaces. movie palaces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they had brought in Meyer sound to augment their already good sound system. And the theater holds like 2,300 people or something like that. It was a gorgeous night and the lights came down and the movie started. And from the very beginning, especially, I mean, I love that opening sequence with Death Don't Have No Mercy with those ancient drawings. Yeah. I just went, oh, my God, here we go. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I was completely immersed the first time I watched it. I was completely immersed the whole time. I loved it. And, and it was different parts of my mind were going because, well, first of all, there are a whole lot of my photographs, especially at the beginning, uh -huh. uh, in the film. So I'm seeing my photographs and I'm seeing my life flash before me in the, the first 10 years part of it. Uh, but at the same time as a film, there was so many layers and so many things going on. I was just, I, I was thrilled. The other thing I wanted to say is that perhaps the best audience for this film in the end is the uneducated 
because they don't come to see this film with an agenda and a bias. And, you know, in the, in the weeks after the first premieres and even now, every review that I read, every comment that I got on my Facebook page, every note that I got, criticism, every single time it was what they, what they left out what Amir left out, who they left uh, out. Yeah, well, what about yeah. this person? What about that person? And whatever. And I thought about it a lot because some of those people that they left out, their people are absolutely right. Well, what about these people? And what about these situations that are not even mentioned? But I just took a different look at it. And I think my take on it is that the things that were left in were artistic choices by Amir. And I think he was specifically choosing representatives of all those other missing people. Each, each situation and each person that is highlighted in the film and even the people that are interviewed and what they talk about seen as a whole, it, it is it is so powerful it really gives a picture and that's why i say that the the uneducated might be the best audience because they can go into it with a pure mind and just experience the film without going oh wait a minute where's mountain girl and what about so and so and and all of that and you know deadheads and also those of us that were in the heart of it especially early on, have all these other people and all these other, well, what about this? What about that? You know, just like nattering in your head. The movie is four me. hours long, folks. Uh, well, you know, you know what? Here's, here's could my it be 10? Sure. Yeah, my, my take on it is you could make a 10-hour miniseries that's linear and chronological and includes many more of those people and those scenarios that got left out. And yet would that 10 hour miniseries leave you with any better understanding of uh, an appreciation for the Grateful Dead? Now there'd would always it be, be something as missing. entertaining. Yeah. There'd always yeah. be something missing. And so I think, uh, I mean, I think it's a masterful film and, and I congratulate Amir on the choices that he made, even though I didn't agree with all of them, mm -hmm. but I you have, you have to step back and look at the whole thing and go, yeah, that really says it. That really conveys it to me. I completely agree. Agree with you, Rosie. I, you know, when I first got the, uh, the assignment, Oh, Hey, you know, let's, you got to watch this thing the next day. It's four hours long. And then you're going to interview Amir. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And all of a sudden, I at the right away, I bought right into it. And all of a sudden, four hours was gone. And I felt, and I said this to Amir when I interviewed him, I said, you know, a lot of people talk about that, you know, especially critics and people just looking at it from a film standpoint. But to me, there's no fat in it. It was cut very nicely. Uh, it tells a very compelling story. Sure, there are things that are missing, and depending on your perspective, there may be something more important than other things. 
but overall, as a storytelling uh, 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 medium, the as a as a four hour cinema piece, um, it's one of the best uh, documentaries on a rock band I have ever seen. Bob, w- what are your thoughts, or what do you think that uh, what, well, what's your favorite part of it? I always I always have trouble uh, watching movies of, of people that I know, documentaries mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. that I know, because the first thing I go. Are, is this is this the people I know? And then uh, if it is, does it make me go running away from it, going like, I don't know about that, you know? <laughs> and I was compelled the whole time, maybe because I, I, I wasn't in the uh, foundry of the early days like Rosie was. I, I've sort of given up the idea that there's any sense of accuracy. There's chronological things that you have to get right. As Rosie said, you know, people will pick that apart. But the idea that there's an accurate interpretation of the dead, I think it was Barlow who says it's the, uh, it's the 500 blind men describing an elephant. Yeah. An elephant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that seems to be very, very true. And amidst that, can you tell a story? And, you know, this is filmmaking you know, it, it is about making a film and making something that holds together and that people want to watch, not checking off uh, a list of infinite number of things. Did I include it? You know what I mean? Uh, so it, it well, and the the big thing that I felt was really powerful was the band talking for themselves, including Jerry. Yes. And Equally. one of my one of my favorite um, scenes in the film, which I thought was so funny, was there's a picture of a, a the, on camera is this deadhead, and he's clearly talking to Jerry. I mean, I can I can hear Jerry's voice, and he's saying, "Do you got any tickets for tonight?" And Jerry's saying, eh, "No, I don't. You know, I don't. Not personally, not me." But uh, you know how it is. There'll be some around, you know. And then uh, the the guy says, "Well, I really want to hold a ticket tonight. I want to really ticket." And and he goes, "Yeah, well, you know, there's something will show up." And he goes, "Did you go to the show last night?" <laughs> the guy asked Jerry. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so clearly, his perspective is completely different. Yeah. Um, so you know, and and that wonderfulness, that that sort of irreverence, the humor, um, the not taking yourself too seriously, and the the joy, and 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 the uh, the importance of the psychedelics, but then the importance of how you respond to it, um, and what it can teach you, and all of that. I thought that was a very compelling story for it. I really really enjoyed it. Nobody, nobody seemed like they were pretending to be anybody else, which is wonderful. Nobody was explaining what Jerry meant, and and the the, the things about Hunter were fabulous. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, yeah. Hunter is so brilliant. And so and important so to the to the success of uh, of, yes. of the band, and that goes to what 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 Rosie was talking about earlier about the the sharing aspect. I mean, the fact is is that while Jerry might have been the leader in some way or another, he knew he couldn't do it himself. 
Um, you know, and Hunter is a perfect example of that. I mean, the two of them together are what creates this wonderful songwriting exactly. that, which is what is going to last forever. Let's face it; that's the that's the the real stamp on history is is these wonderful songs that we're all left with. But I think the movie really says that the this band was way more than just a band, and uh, it's it's a whole thing. And uh, and I think Amir did a great job of trying to explain that, along with telling the the you know the basic chronological story of how the band came about and and moved from point to point to point in its history. Yes. So it, it it almost felt like a documentary of the truth of the folklore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because it it I think by not being bogged down in too many specifics, it got it covered so much territory because you'd still be making the film if you were deciding which, you know, oh, gee, I needed to include this person or that person. Because, yes, there were many more many people who were very important to a lot of things. But um, you got a sense. I got a sense of the history. I got a sense of a of what they were trying to do. And uh, it all rang very true for my experience of where they ended up when I was working with them. And the same with you, Rosie? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So one last question to each of you. And if you think that last question was hard, if you could add <laughs> or remove something from the film, one thing, what would it be? Bob, let's go with you first. Gee, I don't even think in those terms. Um, uh, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, uh, this is somebody's work. And uh, I mean, I, I would have to look at it, uh, you know, four or five times to even get to that place uh, over what I've already watched it. I mean, uh, uh, there isn't anything, uh, it, it kind of flowed. I, I think if I were to do... Uh, one thing is I think I'd like to see it as a film and not as episodes. I'm wondering, I, I, I didn't get to see oh, it. Oh, you didn't get to see it in the theater like in Rosie In the theater, did. Oh. yes. So I'm wondering what that, what that, what difference that would make to not have, you know, the, the sort of, whether there were editorial differences that you could do in a film presentation that you'd have to say, well, this is not in this episode. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Rosie? Uh, well, I totally agree, and I was fortunate enough to see it twice in a theater, first at the Castro, and then uh, not too long ago, I went back down to San Rafael as showing, and and uh, in a smaller theater, the San Rafael Theater. Oh, was and, that the one that Bob and uh, and Steve and, uh, and, and Amir uh, hosted? I believe so. Yeah. I would say if there's no way to see it in a theater, which in these days, you know, it's impossible now, at least for now. Uh, I Then this is what I tell my friends about this film. If you're going to see it, okay, it's in six episodes, but you can watch them consecutively all at once as if you were in a theater. So here's what I tell people. You really should watch it as a four-hour film. You watch episode one through three, take a 20-minute break like we did in the theater in intermission, and then watch the last three episodes. And so, you know, if you don't have a good 
sound system or a good screen at home, find a friend who has Amazon Prime and go to their house or set up a, a viewing party. Everybody turn off your cell phones and smoke a big bowl and put up <laughs> your feet and watch the whole damn thing. Well, Rose, Rosie, I'm going to let you have the so last say there. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it, it, it's a wonderful picture. And who knows? I, I think there may be some midnight showings that uh, might end up back in the theater here not too long. But uh, we're really thankful that Amazon was able to, uh, to, to bring this to, to a mass audience. Uh, which is uh, which is great, and and you know a lot of people binge watch um, uh, various shows these days. So I, I think a lot of people will do what you're suggesting there, Rosie. So, all right. So uh, guys, um, uh, first of all, thanks a lot. Now, now, uh, Bob, I believe you've got a, an exhibit called Double Take, uh, featuring the paintings, videos, and sculptures and drawings uh, that are yes. on display. It's uh, on now till August fifth. Oh, until August fifth, yes. and that is at nine ten Howard. Street. Street in San Francisco, right? Right, right. And, and then a performance on the uh, on July fifteenth. July fifteenth, right, with the psychedelic cabaret. Is that yes. correct? That's okay. It. Okay. All right. And of course, you know, everybody should pick up Rosie's book, Dancing with the Dead, a photographic memoir, My Good Old Days with the Grateful Dead, and the San Francisco music scene, nineteen sixty four to nineteen seventy four. You can find it on Amazon. You can uh, order a uh, uh, actually a, a paperback copy, or uh, I think uh, Rosie, you were telling me that the, uh, the the Kindle copy actually comes with the color photographs. Is that right? Right. Yeah. You can you can go to Amazon or go to rosiemcgee.com and it'll give you all the different ways you can buy it. But the the, the Kindle edition has color photographs and it's viewable on any device with the free Kindle app. The uh, black and white photos in the paperback, because that's the only way that I could afford to, to publish it at all. And it's also available as a downloadable audio book with me reading my own book and uh, went into a professional recording studio and did that. Yeah, it's not just uh, a also, photograph book. You also tell your story in it. I want to make sure that uh, right. uh, our listeners know that as well. And then you yeah. are uh, you're actually uh, touring uh, uh, with uh, with the photographs and uh, and giving lectures. Is that right? That's right. Uh, my favorite thing that I'm doing right now is occasionally I will open for a jam band doing a. 45-minute uh, photo presentation about the early days of the dead and then do a book signing. I also speak at uh, uh, academic conferences and stuff. Uh, I have some a few things coming up in the Bay Area coming up next month. On August 2nd, I'll be doing a full-on photo presentation and a book signing at the main branch of the San Francisco Public Library. And the presentation is called The Grateful Dead and the Summer of Love. And then uh, August 6th, I'll be at Jerry Day with books and photos available. I'm looking forward to that because that's always, that's always fun on August 6th. And I'm doing also an academic conference for Northwestern University. I'll be on a panel with Joel Selvin and a couple other people. Uh, July 27th to 29th. So I'm staying busy. I do uh, photo licensing and the speaking engagements. I have a, a gallery show at uh, Yorma Kaukonen's first piece, fur 
uh, I have a gallery show at Yorma Kalkinen's Fur Peace Ranch in Ohio of, of my photos. Okay. So I'm staying busy. Good, good, good. Well, Rosie McGee and Bob Braylove, thanks so much for joining us today on Long Strange You're Podcast. Uh, Thank we you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah.